You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 164, Forts Clinton and Montgomery. I realized we seem to be jumping from place to place over the last few episodes, but there's just too many things going on in too many parts of the country all at the same time. In the fall of 1777, the British had four separate large commands in North America. General William Howe, who had just settled into Philadelphia, General Burgoyne, who was trying to move south through the upper Hudson Valley of New York, General Guy Carleton commanded a force in Canada, mostly around Quebec and Montreal, and General Henry Clinton commanded the base of operations out of New York City. There were some smaller detachments also in Rhode Island, Florida, and elsewhere, but the bulk of the troops were in these four places. At the beginning of the year, the ministry in London seemed focused on Burgoyne's campaign being the primary effort for the year and thought that the other three armies would support Burgoyne. The other three commanders were all more senior to Burgoyne, and although they would not admit it publicly, were pretty irritated that this more junior officer had gone back to London and essentially told the king and the ministry that he was the only one up to the job and that the other generals were too timid to make the daring march through the Hudson Valley to cut off New England from the rest of the colonies. General Howe, pretty much on his own, decided to attack Philadelphia from the south. Earlier in the year, the London Secretary of State, Lord Germain, seemed to think that Howe would march his army across New Jersey and threaten Philadelphia from that direction. Doing this would have drawn Continental troops away from Burgoyne's army to the north. Germain also said he thought Howe would wrap up the campaign rather quickly and be in a position by mid to late summer to move some of his forces north to assist General Burgoyne. Instead, Howe did not even leave New York until late July 1777, after Burgoyne had already captured Fort Ticonderoga. When Howe did depart the city, he boarded ships and slowly sailed down to Maryland. He did not really begin his march on Philadelphia until September. That left the Americans plenty of time to focus on Burgoyne all summer long. Even after Howe had captured Philadelphia in late September, he was still fighting Washington's army at Germantown in October, and he still had not cleared the Delaware River, which he needed to do to open up supply lines for his army. So even by mid-October, Howe was really in no position to provide any support for General Burgoyne in New York. Months later, after all this blew up, many would accuse General Howe of leaving Burgoyne isolated. 
Howe defended himself by saying that if he had just sat in New York City for the whole summer, his detractors would have accused him of doing nothing with his large army while simply waiting for Burgoyne to do all of the work that year. Instead, Howe went out and captured the American capital. The fact was that Howe viewed Burgoyne as a reckless upstart. There were reasons why armies moved slowly and cautiously to avoid ambush and counterattack, as well as to maintain secure supply lines. Burgoyne was brushing aside all that in his effort to win glory through a roll of the dice. If Howe had just moved out of New York City and up the Hudson Valley, Burgoyne still would have received all the glory, even if Howe had to bail him out. Similarly, Generals Carleton and Clinton had a selfish incentive to see Burgoyne fail for the same reasons. A Burgoyne victory would have made them all look like old ladies who were too afraid to engage in the necessary offensives to defeat the rebellion. Now, even if the generals really felt that way, they could not let it show either through words or deeds. Letting a fellow officer fail for petty personal reasons would have been highly dishonorable and certainly would have been a career-ender for any officer showing that kind of attitude. With Burgoyne's army in trouble in upstate New York, his fellow generals had to do what they could to assist him. As I said, Howe was still too engaged around Philadelphia, and as I covered last week, Carleton in Canada did not have enough forces to be of much help, and besides, with the threats against Fort Ticonderoga, his reinforcements could not reach Burgoyne anyway. That left General Clinton in New York to do anything for Burgoyne. Henry Clinton has had a recurring role in our story so far, but here's a quick recap. Henry Clinton, you may recall, was the son of Admiral George Clinton. Henry spent much of his youth in New York while his father was royal governor of the colony. As a teenager, Clinton purchased a commission in the regular army. His money and connections allowed him to rise to captain before the Seven Years' War began. Two years into the war, he had risen to lieutenant colonel. Clinton fought multiple actions in the German states during that war, and he suffered a serious wound at the Battle of Neuheim in 1762 while serving as aide-de-camp to Prince Ferdinand. During his service as a young officer at war, he got to know other officers serving beside him, including Charles Lee and William Alexander, also known as Lord Sterling. He would later face these two men as enemy commanders in the Revolution. Also during the Seven Years' War, Clinton developed a relationship with Lord Cornwallis. When the Seven Years' War ended, Clinton found himself navigating the highly political world of British elites. His father had died near the end of the war, and Clinton spent years trying to settle the estate. He also got married during this time, though his wife died from complications in childbirth just a few years later. Clinton found a valuable patron in the Duke of Gloucester, the brother of King George III. Clinton also got elected to the House of Commons. Political power was important to his advancement as an officer in the army. His primary interest, though, was military, not political. This member of parliament spent less time in London and more surveying the battlefields of Europe and studying the art of war under officers who had fought under Frederick the Great. 
1772, Clinton received his promotion to Major General, and in 1775, he shipped out with two other Major Generals, William Howe and John Burgoyne, to Boston to assist then-General Thomas Gage with the rebellion that had recently broken out there. When London recalled Gage a few months later, the more senior General Howe took command and Clinton became his second. Howe and Clinton seemed to get along well at first, mostly because they could both trash General Gage's decisions. Once Howe took command, the relationship quickly soured as Howe seemed to want to keep Clinton sidelined and was not really interested in his military advice. In early 1776, Howe gave Clinton an independent command to go conquer the Carolinas. Clinton met up again with, by this time, General Cornwallis, as the two failed to make any progress there. Their efforts culminated in the failed attempt to take Fort Sullivan in Charleston Harbor, their efforts thwarted by their old ally, now Continental General Charles Lee. The loss at Fort Sullivan hit Clinton hard. He feared it would tarnish his reputation forever. Instead, he obsessed over it and grew paranoid over how the loss might be used against him. It made him even more desperate for another military victory to put that loss behind him. Clinton supported Howe's invasion of New York, although he continually grew frustrated that Howe would not give him a free hand to capture the enemy army. In a peak of frustration, Clinton told Cornwallis that he would rather have an independent command of only three companies than continue as Howe's second-in-command. Cornwallis, of course, relayed these comments directly to General Howe, and the relationship between Howe and Clinton seemed to be permanently broken after that. Howe gave the more junior Cornwallis the lead role in chasing Washington's army across New Jersey, and in late 1776, Howe ordered Clinton to take Newport, Rhode Island. Howe then reduced the number of soldiers under Clinton's command so that he could not safely engage in offensive operations. Then Howe started sending notes to Clinton, asking why he was not operating more aggressively. Clinton saw that he was being shoved into a back burner and that Howe was building a paper trail to show that Clinton was not an effective military leader. In January 1777, Clinton took a ship back to London to resign his commission. He arrived in time to learn that the king had granted an independent command to the more junior General Burgoyne to invade upstate New York. At the same time, London refused to accept Clinton's resignation. Instead, they awarded him a knighthood and told him he was doing a simply wonderful job. They then ordered him to return to New York and continue as Howe's second-in-command. Clinton arrived back in New York City in July 1777, while General Howe was still preparing to launch his fleet for the eventual campaign on Philadelphia. The two generals argued, as Clinton said that his move against Philadelphia this late in the season would leave Burgoyne's army without any support. Clinton also complained that Howe was taking almost the entire army with him. Although Clinton did have several thousand soldiers under his command after Howe left, most of them were either Hessian or local militia. Howe was taking all the best combat units with the fleet. 
Clinton was responsible for defending more than a thousand square miles of territory from Long Island to Staten Island. He feared he could not withstand a serious attack, let alone engage in any offensive operations. Howe told Clinton that he had no orders to assist Burgoyne and that Clinton was a big boy capable of defending New York City against a few rebel militia. After Howe left, he sent a note to Clinton suggesting that Clinton should probably make some sort of diversion in the lower Hudson Valley to distract the enemy away from Burgoyne, provided of course he could do it while still protecting Manhattan. Clinton, of course, believed that he had nowhere near the resources for this, and that once again Howe was creating a paper trail to cover himself. Over the late summer and early fall, the Americans did conduct several raids against Long Island and Staten Island, always testing British defenses there. Clinton could do little but play defense and watch how things played out. Clinton did communicate with General Pigeot, although some people are pronouncing this Piggott, I'm not sure which is correct, but the general in command of the Newport defenses in Rhode Island to see if troops there could launch an action to distract the Continentals. Piggott had taken over after the locals had kidnapped the previous commander, General Prescott. Howe also left Piggott with too few troops to do much of anything. Clinton did launch one small raid into North Jersey to capture some cattle, but that failed to elicit much of any response. On September 11th, which was the same day General Howe was attacking at Brandywine, Clinton's concerns about Burgoyne's predicament prompted him to write to the general to see if a small incursion into the Hudson Valley might help to distract the enemy. Getting messages through the enemy lines was difficult, and Burgoyne received the letter ten days later, just after he had fought the Americans at Freeman's Farm. His response did not reach Clinton until September 29th, saying that such an attack would prove helpful. With that, Clinton prepared to launch an offensive with the hope of drawing off some of the Continental forces that were challenging Burgoyne. Burgoyne did not describe exactly how desperate his situation had become, but the message did make clear that he had no intention to withdraw. He would continue to press forward in hopes of linking up with Clinton in New York City. With that, Clinton felt obliged to try at least something with his limited resources to relieve the pressure on Burgoyne. Now, north of New York City, the Americans retained control of the area. Recall that General Howe had sent a raid to Peekskill in April of 1777 to test the American defenses. See episode 133. American resistance had been enough for the British to forget about any further raids into the Hudson Valley. Washington had given command of the area to General Israel Putnam, the old Connecticut officer who was third in line in command of the Continental Army, behind only Washington and the recently disgraced General Schuyler. Despite his rank, Putnam was pushing 60 and not one of Washington's favored field officers. He commanded only about 600 soldiers at Peekskill on the east bank of the river, with another 600 nearby at Forts Clinton and Montgomery on the west bank. Those forts fell under the command of the Clinton brothers, who are no relation to Henry Clinton, at least not a close one. George Clinton was governor of New York at the time, 
and also served as a general of militia. He commanded Fort Montgomery. His brother, James Clinton, was a Continental brigadier and was in command of Fort Clinton. Both forts were right next to each other, separated only by a small creek. Washington had ordered all of these commanders, the Clinton brothers as well as General Putnam, to send any extra soldiers they possibly had to support either Washington in the Philadelphia campaign or to General Gates, who was facing down General Burgoyne further upstate in New York. As a result, the forts had fairly minimal garrisons and really were not in a position to defend the area against a larger attack. In New York City, General Henry Clinton packed nearly half of his available soldiers, about 3,000 men, into ships on October 3rd. To distract and confuse the enemy, Clinton first sailed his fleet toward Long Island Sound as if they were moving toward Connecticut. He then doubled back and moved up the Hudson River toward Peekskill. On the morning of October 5th, the British landed a force on the east bank of the river a few miles below Peekskill, capturing a small continental battery there. That British landing convinced General Putnam that the British would march north to Peekskill and take the town again, just as they had in the April raid. Putnam moved his 600 Continentals into the hills and sent words to Forts Clinton and Montgomery to send whatever reinforcements they could spare. That, of course, was exactly what the British General Clinton wanted. With Forts Clinton and Montgomery even further weakened, the British reported their ships, sailed up the river, and disembarked on the west bank of the Hudson at Stony Point, just below the forts. Henry Clinton divided his army into two columns. The soldiers marched inland without any cannons or heavy baggage. Although the British had no cannons, the American garrisons had been reduced to only skeleton crews before their arrival. The first column, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Mungo Campbell, with about 900 soldiers, including about 400 Loyalist militia, launched an attack against Fort Montgomery. The fort had deployed about 100 defenders under the command of Captain John Lamb with a small field cannon a little over a mile from the fort. Lamb's division halted the British column for a time, but had to retreat before superior numbers. The Americans had to abandon and spike their cannon before they left. They then set up a second defensive line closer to the fort, leading to a second skirmish. Again, the defenders retreated against superior numbers. However, their actions delayed the British from reaching the fort until shortly before dusk. The defenders managed to inflict a fair number of casualties as the British stormed the fort walls. Once inside, according to American accusations, the attackers massacred part of the surrendering garrison. The fort commander, James Clinton, with a portion of the garrison, managed to escape into the woods north of the fort. Nearby Fort Clinton mounted a similar defense against the British column, this one under the attacking command of Sir Henry Clinton. The attackers far outnumbered the garrison and stormed the fort anyway. Like his brother, Governor Clinton managed to avoid capture. He slipped down to the river and crossed on a gunboat as the fort fell. Of the 600 defenders at both forts, 
the Americans suffered about 75 killed or wounded, with another 263 captured. The attackers reported only 41 killed and 142 wounded. With the American defenders captured or dispersed, Sir Henry Clinton remained at the forts for several days, hoping to receive word from General Burgoyne that he had pushed through and would be linking up with them soon. Clinton also sent another detachment upriver to force the surrender of Fort Constitution, just across the river from what will become West Point. The small garrison there abandoned the fort and fled inland. Over the next week, the British cleared the river of obstructions, including a chain that the Patriots had installed across the river to block naval ships. Most of the Americans who had escaped the forts made their way to link up with Israel Putnam's small force. Even so, the combined force was far smaller than the British contingent opposing them. General Putnam and the Clintons deployed further upriver in hopes of preventing further British advances. Sir Henry received a final message from General Burgoyne, which had been sent on September 28th, informing him that Burgoyne's army of 5,000 was facing an American army twice their size, but that they still hoped to reach Albany, and could Clinton please meet them there with supplies. Burgoyne also said that since he was nearly in New York City, he awaited Clinton's orders. Burgoyne's message made clear that he could only hold out for a couple of weeks without support, and after that, he would probably have to withdraw. Clinton saw the note as a thinly-veiled attempt for Burgoyne looking for political cover for his imminent loss. He wanted to toss the command to Clinton before his army surrendered. On October 7th, having taken Forts Clinton and Montgomery, Clinton wrote a response to Burgoyne saying that he had made his move into the Lower Hudson as a diversion, but that there was no way he could make it to Albany. He also made clear that he could not provide any orders to Burgoyne since he had no idea what Burgoyne's situation was on the ground. Clinton sent his response via three separate messengers, but none of them ever made it back to Burgoyne. A few days later, Clinton returned to New York City, leaving General John Vaughn in charge of the force still occupying the lower Hudson Valley. Clinton's return was not simply that he had gotten tired of the fight or time in the field. Two of his top officers back in New York City had fallen ill, and the next in command was a Hessian officer with a reputation for drunkenness. Clinton's primary responsibility at this point was still the defense of New York City. His fear that Washington, having lost Philadelphia, might turn on the depleted defenders of New York led Clinton to return to shore up the city's defenses. By October 13th, Clinton was back up in the Hudson Valley, hoping to make contact with Burgoyne. However, he still had no intention of risking his force all the way to Albany. Clinton was not going to make the same mistake that Burgoyne had made by stretching his supply lines too far and risking his base in New York. Clinton had hoped that once Howe secured Philadelphia, that Howe would send reinforcements back to New York so that Clinton could send a large force into the Hudson Valley and make a difference. It was clear, however, by that time that Howe was not going to be able to provide any reinforcements anytime soon. In fact, Howe wanted the opposite. On October 17th, 
Clinton received a note from General Howe ordering him to send 3,000 of his soldiers to Philadelphia. Howe likely sent this message shortly after the American attack at Germantown. With this loss of nearly half of his command, Clinton could not even hope to hold the forts that he had taken in the Hudson Valley. He burned Forts Clinton and Montgomery and withdrew his remaining forces back to New York City. With Howe's demands for reinforcements, Clinton was left with only a few regiments of mostly Hessian soldiers under his command, along with maybe about 3,000 Loyalist militia of dubious value. Next week, with no rescue coming from Clinton, General Burgoyne prepares for battle at Bemis Heights. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks, as always, to Trey Nance and George Davis for their support of the podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to Carolyn Woods for a generous one-time gift via PayPal. I am most grateful for everyone who helps defray the costs of producing this podcast. I also appreciate any feedback about any episodes. I've started adding my email address as well as my Twitter handle, at Amrev Podcast and links to my Facebook page at the bottom of new blog episodes. So, if you want to reach out for any reason, please do. This week's episode covered the British raid into the Hudson Valley that captured Forts Clinton and Montgomery. It's sometimes called the Battle of the Clintons because the American generals James and George Clinton went up against British General Sir Henry Clinton. People sometimes ask, is there any relation between the American generals and the British one? There is, in fact, a distant one. They share a common great-great-great-grandfather, Henry Clinton, the second Earl of Lincoln, who died in 1616. That relationship makes the American generals, James and George Clinton, the fourth cousins to British General Sir Henry Clinton. So, they share a common ancestor, but did not really know each other as family. George Clinton, who was also governor of New York at the time of this battle, 
would serve in that role for quite some time. He would also go on to serve as vice president under both Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. His brother, General James Clinton, would serve in some minor state legislative roles after the war. But James Clinton is probably most remembered by history because he married a woman named Mary DeWitt. The two of them had a son named DeWitt Clinton, who would go on to serve as governor of New York and would also run against James Madison in 1812. His uncle George had been replaced on Madison's ticket by Elbridge Gerry. One other possible point of confusion I wanted to clear up. I noted in the main show that the British landed at Stony Point. Please don't confuse this with the 1779 Battle of Stony Point that I will cover in a future episode. As the result of events in this week's story, General Israel Putnam received heavy criticism for his loss of the forts and for being fooled by Sir Henry Clinton's feints. At this point in the war, General Putnam was the third most senior major general in service. Artemis Ward had resigned a year earlier, and Charles Lee was still a prisoner of war. Aside from Washington himself, only Philip Schuyler outranked Putnam, and Schuyler was already on his way out after being removed from command following the loss of Fort Ticonderoga several months earlier. General Putnam even outranked the now-hero General Horatio Gates. Despite Putnam's rank, Washington had not been impressed with Putnam's performance as a field commander for some time. That was why Putnam commanded the Hudson Valley region with no real army of any size. It was a reasonably honorable post since it faced the main British outpost at New York City, but it was not thought to be a place where major combat operations would take place. If the war did move there, other commanders would likely bring other armies to the fight. Following the loss of these forts, though, General Washington removed Putnam from command and sent him back to Connecticut, with his main role being the recruitment of new soldiers. After a court-martial exonerated Putnam, Washington still retained him on staff under his direct supervision rather than giving him another independent command. Putnam remained in that status until a stroke in 1779 forced him to retire from active service. Sir Henry Clinton's move into the Hudson Valley was never meant to be anything more than a distraction for the Americans. Even so, it showed the weakness of the American defenses there. If General Howe had provided Clinton with more troops, Clinton might have been able to reach Albany and distract the Northern Army under General Gates from capturing General Burgoyne's army at Saratoga. That is one of the what-ifs that historians like to imagine. But of course, the lack of British forces in New York City prevented any sort of successful campaign. Even if they had remained in possession of Forts Clinton and Montgomery, it's quite possible that General Gates could have deployed part of his army to retake those forts after Burgoyne's army surrendered. So while Sir Henry's raid turned out to be rather inconsequential, it did have the potential to be more. If you want to read more about this part of the war, you will want to get a copy of Michael O. Logos's book with Musket and Tomahawk the West Point Hudson Valley Campaign in the Wilderness War of 1777. That's the book recommendation of the week. 
This is Volume 3 of the trilogy that Logatz has written about the war in New York during 1777. This one, Volume 3, focuses primarily on the Hudson Valley Campaign. It is the most comprehensive source that I know of on this topic. That said, the book is relatively short. It's 173 pages, but about 70 of those pages are notes and index. So you're really looking at about 100 pages of actual story. Like the first two volumes, Logos does a great job of laying out the campaign day by day, sometimes hour by hour, which I find very helpful. If you want to read more, Logos's book, With Musket and Tomahawk, Volume 3, is the one you want. And frankly, I recommend reading all three volumes, but they are sold separately if you want just this one topic. My online recommendation this week is an online book, but this one is not available at archive.org. It's an e-book written by the U.S. Army for the Army. However, it has no copyright and is available for anyone to download from the U.S. Army website. It's called Staff Ride Handbook for the Saratoga Campaign, 13 June to 8 November 1777, written by Stephen Clay, and published by the Combat Studies Institute Press in 2018. This is a great, really comprehensive book of over 400 pages that does a wonderful job of laying out the entire Saratoga Campaign from the time Burgoyne leaves Canada until after its surrender at Saratoga. I've included a direct link to the book on my website and the blog, and the whole book can be downloaded as a PDF. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.